明日黄昏時までに夜御前右衛門を討ち取れ。二人の娘が日々育っていく様子を見ているのは例えば畑の作物や草花の成長を眺めるのにも似て実に楽しいものでがんす。ガチを抜け落ち着いて考えれ起こされたこと。あなたは昔とちっとも変わりましねの私の方はすっかり変わってしまいましたどもヒョウだろこれ以上続ければ私はあんたを切るぞ結構だ早く抜け静かさを区切る窓の中なぜ清兵衛様が私合いに残されたご家族の方にはわすが責任を持って世話をさせる先それ伺って安心でがんす Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Heroic Purgatory, an Asian cinema podcast. My name is John, and with me, as always, my co host Jason. Jason, how are you doing today? I'm not bad, John. How are you?、Uh, I'm doing fine as well. In today's episode, we are continuing with, uh, uh, as, with our season's theme of、uh, big Asian award winners. And uh, this uh, episode covers the Oscar nominated film. The Twilight Samurai, Samurai direct, written and directed by Yoji Yamada.、Uh, but before we get into that, we go over、uh, our usual segment of what、uh, media we consumed over the last couple of weeks. So, Jason, why don't you start? So,、um, in between doing festival work, some DIY at home, and、uh, my regular day job, I've、uh, had the chance to. Finish rewatching Monster, the TV anime, which I mentioned in the last episode. I think that next to Master Keaton, Monster is my favorite TV anime.、Uh, next, ever. To, next to what? Sorry? Master Keaton. So that's another anime based on a manga by Naoki Urasawa. I've never heard of it. Master Keaton. Okay. You might be、uh, in for a treat then because it's about an insurance investigator who's half English, half Japanese. Ex SAS, and he goes around the world on adventures and、uh, Oxford educated as well. So he's kind of like a Indiana Jones type of figure. Kitten, like the name, not kitten, like baby cat. Oh, no. Oh, okay. Cats. All right. Yeah. Master Keaton. Okay. I still, have, I still haven't heard of it, but at least it makes a little bit more sense. <laughs> Master Kitten, a、uh, uh, samurai kitten who goes across Japan writing wrongs.、Uh, yeah. So.、Um, Just to get back to Monster, like I said in the last episode, it's a great spy thriller,、um, serial killer thriller,、uh, with a rich context of Cold War, post Cold War Europe, and、um, features a 
great battle between a protagonist and, a, and an antagonist who are like binary opposites philosophically. So you got like Johan, or Johan, the serial killer, who's got this very uh, fiendish way of isolating uh, his victims and leaving them in despair by killing everybody who's in their orbit, who's, who knows them. Uh, so they become essentially uh, nameless and uh, alone in the world. And over the course of the series, you realize that this is this particular hell of isolation is what Johan perpetually exists in, and it's got it's visualized by this barren, lonely landscape, uh, which has uh, both uh, a figurative as well as a, a literal meaning, which becomes clear later on in the story. And meanwhile, the main character, Doctor Tenma, is a hero who you can't help but love because he goes across Europe, building connections with others through saving lives and bringing people justice. And the more people he meets, Wait, is it a, is it across Europe or across Germany? Across Europe. So uh, France, Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia, um, East and West Germany, and uh, yeah. So like. He meets a rich cast of characters, and um, even like some of the most minor characters will appear uh, again and again throughout the series. They all have important parts in moving the story forward or the themes forward and deepening things. And uh, yeah, at, at the end of like uh, 72 episodes, I was like, uh, yeah, I really love this anime. And uh, if you haven't watched it, John, I hope you do get the chance or at least read the manga because you said it was at the local library. Yes. So uh, I haven't given anything away. Uh, there's still plenty to find out. Apart from anime, uh, in terms of games, I've been playing Darkest Dungeon. So I mentioned that about six months ago, I think. This time my return to it is a concerted effort to complete the game. And I'm kind of getting addicted to it because uh, I'll go in and play 40 minutes and then like an hour later I'll go back and play another 40 minutes. I think my initial impression was probably like many other players in that I found it overwhelming due to the scarcity of resources. Uh, it's a dungeon crawler in which all of the resources are too expensive uh, to purchase so you're you're only getting a few torches to go deep into the dark dungeons you're only getting a few bandages um, to heal uh, cuts and bruises and so forth and the frosty enemies is uh, quite terrifying and the dreadful sights and sounds of the haunted castle and blighted forests and uh, like uh, poison coves that surround it uh, like really atmospheric uh but oh, over the course of my playthrough, I've built up a roster of heroes with strong skills, and I've improved like the hamlet, which acts as the base. Um, so I've been able to improve weaponry and so forth. And now I'm a bit more confident venturing into apprentice difficulty dungeons, and I'm at a point where I can kill lower-level monsters with one blow. Uh, that said, I tried a veteran difficulty level today and barely got out alive, so there's a long way me to go with that game uh i think after i finish playing that i'll probably um go on to uh train simulator uh train simulator yeah japan railways east a released uh simulation game based on um like various trains that run through tokyo essentially so uh when some of my strongest memories of japan are being at train stations as sad as that sounds um, each train station has like a, a jingle that plays over the PA system and um, like some of the locations are, are beautiful as well. So uh, Train Simulator is what it says on the tin uh, or what the title suggests. Uh, you're basically is it a train in Japanese driver. or is there an English version of it? It's in English and it's on Steam. And it's like uh, I bought it for like £7 when it was released back in September. So yeah, I'll probably be doing something nerdy like that to um, get over the horrors of Darkest Dungeon. 
And um, in preparation for the podcast, uh, I watched or rewatched Gohato um, When the Last Sword is Drawn, The Hidden Blade, Sword of Doom, and Twilight Samurai. Um, really great selection of samurai movies spanning the decades. Uh, so hopefully that uh, I can bring something interesting to the table for this discussion. Yeah, all, all of them great movies. Indeed. Um, and aside from that, I'm also practicing Japanese a lot more during my free time in work and outside of it. So I've passed like higher intermediate Japanese twice, but I've gone back to basics of my old textbooks because I found that uh, my lack of discipline in um, just studying has resulted in me forgetting lots of things. So Japanese as much as possible. And uh, that's been my cultural consumption so far. All right, all right. That's a, certainly certainly a great uh, a great way to pass the time. So, as for my consumption and activities, I was trying not to betray anything, but I also started watching Monster after you mentioned it last time. So that was three weeks ago, as of the time of this recording, and um, I am right now in the thirties, somewhere in the thirties of uh, of the episode. Um, okay. I forget thirty three or something like that, and uh, and of course I knew that I would enjoy it as uh, I I had read about it. I was I knew that this was something that whether it was the manga or the anime. Of course, I'm watching the anime. I don't know if I'll ever touch the manga, but well, who knows? Uh, I, however, I don't think my feelings for it are quite as strong as as yours. There are certain things about it that bothered me, and I think non trivial things, especially about. Uh, what I consider to be maybe an uneven tone about sort of what the authors are trying to like the kind of story that they're trying to tell. For instance, I found the first, I think it's two episodes where it's all the setup where it takes place in the eighties. Then it, it yeah. then eventually we move on to the nineties where Johan, as you mentioned, the serial killer has grown up. And I think that's, I don't think there's any other jumps in time. I think the nineties is where the story takes place. Yeah. But those first two episodes, I'm I'm gonna be. They were hard to get through. I, I felt like I was watching a soap opera. It was so so unrealistic in terms of pretty much everything that it depicted. Like oh, the whole thing about oh you have to operate on this one because we are only care about money, uh, and and, and all what, human life is equal. Yeah, like that, that whole thing felt felt way too contrived. It was just uh, it, it felt like there was absolutely no no concern for any kind of realism or plausibility uh, in that one. And I, the thing is, uh, the, the counter argument that would be, well, it's an anime. You sort of have to, uh, have to get used to certain things like that. But I, I think they hurt this particular anime because the premise and also as it later goes on, it's a very grounded story, not like you would typically expect, expect of conventional anime. Yeah. Uh, and I have no idea if the manga is like that. It's, it's, I mean, it's unlike anything that I've seen in terms of its realism and its groundedness and its sort of like uh, exploration of, of very grounded topics and very, uh, very universal, but also very topical themes. So whenever a story like that has elements that appear either wildly implausible, wildly melodramatic and widely unrealistic, where to the point where it feels like the author just didn't bother to do their research. They are more so than any other anime. They do a, a big, uh, they make a, they take you out of the story pretty much. Okay. Uh, yeah. I've, yeah, I didn't have so much of a problem because like Dr. Tenma is this 
sort of idealistic hero, and I think it all played into his character. I don't. I don't think he's an idealistic hero. I think he is, you know, a a, a very good doctor, and it's there's certainly like, you know, like the miracle worker type of doctor that that exists in the real world. I don't think there is anything like if he just because the whole thing is about him getting uh, revenge. Uh, sort of like bring back order to the world by killing Johan. I don't think we're giving anything away because that's a sort of a premise that is established very early on. Yeah, it's him wrestling with the idea of whether he should kill a person as opposed to, um, you know, giving life to people like he normally does. And that's uh, an issue, like an his idealism, he wrestles with it throughout the entire series. Well, he, he, he has, I, there's an idealism, morally speaking, that he's wrestling with, but I think as a character of fiction, I don't think he is, he's, he's uh, idealized. He tones down after those two first episodes, so it, it gets better and better. Um, in fact, actually, I would say that as a whole, it, it just it keeps getting better. And actually, the episodes that I'm right now, it's probably my are my favorite so far. Uh, every okay. episode seems to improve a little bit upon as the story goes on. I I mean, there was the 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 melodrama of the of the first two episodes is sort of significantly toned down and almost disappears. It still pops up a couple of times. Like for example, one one particular subplot that bothered me was the. Uh, the whole thing with Dieter and his uh, guardian, who was part of that, uh... Uh, the orphanage, Kinderheim, and it's—I it, mean, it's—it's it's, there. Are, these are minor things, but when when you you include such outrageous things in a story that's so grounded, is it they stick out like a, a sore thumb? Like what I'm particularly when uh, Tenma, and this is minor spoiler alert, although it's still pretty early in the show, so I don't think it's going to be that a big that big of a deal, but. Uh, when Tenma takes him away from him, when he figures out that the child has been abused and takes him yeah. to the hospital, and then the, <laughs> the guy just comes back and takes takes Dieter back. It's like uh, the nurse is like, well, he was nice. Uh, I mean, that's that's that I, I, that made me like violently close the the lid of my laptop because th this is not some uh, you know, some you know. Czechoslovakia in the 40s. This is a, a, a Germany in the 90s. The moment a, an abused child shows up in the hospital, the police is called and nobody's allowed to come and just take that child away. Like that's, it's, it's such a minor thing, but it, it is such a ridiculous also thing to include in a story that is so grounded. Uh, that's, that's how, again, it's, 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 it's a five minutes of an episode and it eventually it's resolved later on, but it is, like you know, there have there had to be at least ten other ways that you could still tell that story and get it from point A to point B because that's really the whole point of that scene. Uh, yeah, I think regular um, listeners will know you're a lot more critical of things, whereas I went in, um, ex you know, when I first watched it back in the early two thousands, um, I was like, oh, what's this anime? And then I found that it had all this real world history and culture. And it, like you said, it is grounded in something um, very deep and complex. And so I was able to take the sort of big anime swings, the characterization, uh, much more in my stride. But is it, I mean, is it being, I mean, I know I'm critical. I tend to, I tend to be critical of certain things, but is it really critical at B, is it really critical when you say that an anime that we can both agree is very realistic, very grounded to do something that is not only implausible, to have a something that is not only implausible, but just completely ridiculous from anybody who's, you know, ever been to a hospital, basically. Thinking back to that episode, 
does Dr. Tenma tell the nurses that Dita has been abused at any point? Or is it just a case that they've taken in the boy and they're treating him for his injuries? It it's doesn't matter. It's, it's, clear. Sta- it's it, standard yeah. procedure. It is standard procedure. I don't remember exactly what Tenma tells. He, he seems concerned. He says, no. Uh, he actually, I think, specifically says, don't let this boy go with anyone. And and uh, don't, un- unless it's me, of course, that wouldn't happen either. Again, it's standard procedure. The moment a kid, an underage kid, shows up at a hospital in any modern, and this is German, like I said, this is Germany in the 90s. This is not, uh, again, uh, Germany in the 1800s. A modern country, a modern Western country, the moment the kid shows up in the hospital like that, the police is called and the kid is not allowed to leave the hospital unless, unless the, the matter is resolved. But for the sake of the anime, I, you know, I was willing to let it go. I, I, I was not. That's the thing. I was, I was not able to <laughs> let it go. Uh, not, not, not let it go. I mean, it's not something that would st- stop me from watching. Obviously, I think that is like in the tens, in the teens of the episode number. So it's pretty early on. But it's just... Is it like episode 10? I forget what it is, but it is pretty early. Uh, and again, that whole thing was like, you know, the cherry on top is it actually the nurse lets the kid go without, and again, without treating him. That's, that's, that's the first cherry on top. And the second cherry on top is because that man was nice. That's the, that's the nurse. Again, it, it feels like the, the, the author didn't basically feel like doing the work of finding a plausible reason for 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 getting to from point A to point B because the whole the whole thing is set up so there's that final confrontation with a fire at the end that's how that episode ends and Dieter ends up going with Tenma of course which is I believe the right way to go about progressing the story for it I have no problem with that uh, but it's just again it feels lazy to me it feels like the author didn't bother didn't care and to me every time if this was Naruto if this was happening in Naruto, or I'm just insert replace Naruto with any anime of its kind, that'll be fine because again, it's within the confines of the genre. But when it happens in such a grounded, realistic, such a serious anime, feel, it, yeah, again, it feels lazy. That's basically what I'm saying. But again, that's that's spending too much time on something that is relatively minor, but it nevertheless bothered me. But it is, I think, it doesn't take away from saying that it is. I think ultimately a great anime, at least so far. And I'm glad I started watching it. Okay. Uh, what else? I did watch a couple of horror films because it is October after all. So I have to, uh, I have to do my duty and watch watch horror films, even though I'm not particularly keen on the genre. And the two that I watched are Carrie and Suspiria. I hadn't seen either of those. I do not know why I had put off watching Carrie so much. Uh, for so long because it was a great film. I I cannot believe how much I enjoyed it. Well, if I mean, there's nothing that uh, uh, that uh, enjoyable. <laughs> well, uh, no, I mean, there's nothing that surprising about it. There shouldn't be, but I don't know for some reason. I think I think it is Brian De Palma. With Brian De Palma, it's always been a hit or miss uh, for him. Every time I'm excited to watch a Brian De Palma movie, I end up being yeah. feeling a little bit disappointed, a little bit let down. There are some films of his that I I enjoy a lot. Uh, and some films that are just kind of, eh, I don't know. I don't. I'm not sure what people, other people, see in this. And Carrie was fantastic. Like I think everything about that film is just so so good. Uh, yeah. The acting, the cinematography, the soundtrack, the the again the the the, the whole story, the climax is just fantastic. Yeah, that brutal build up to the prom sort of yeah. explosion. Yeah. 
Uh, I do. I mean, if I had one minor gripe, I think the film just ends sort of uh, drags a little bit. I, I feel like they didn't know how to end it, so they kind of had that final scene. I'm not sure if that's also in the book. I think it might be. Hmm. Where it's like carries after the prom because the prom film such a like a strong climax that what happens after feels like a bit of a letdown. Like it's essentially her confrontation with her mother. Yeah. Um, oh, uh, which uh, makes me wonder: Have you seen the Dead Zone? I don't think so. No. Okay, that's one I recommend. Um, uh, Stephen King adaptation, and uh, I think you might appreciate that one a lot. What What is What is that about? Is that so like a, Christopher? Based on, well, go ahead. Uh, Christopher Walken plays uh, an English teacher um, who uh, essentially um, uh, falls into a coma, and when he comes out of it, he has the ability to see the future, and um, he gets involved in a uh, political uh, uh, candidate's life. Uh, essentially, um, imagine if Jed Bartlett was evil, and um, he was running for president, and um, uh, Christopher Walken's character has to decide how to handle him. Okay, interesting. Interesting. I'll, so, I'll check it out. Who's who directs it? Uh oh. Um, is it? It's David Cronenberg, I think. Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah, I like Cronenberg. Well, I like some of his stuff. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, it's worth checking out. But yeah, Carrie was great. I don't know. I mean, I'm I was I was thinking about is this really a horror film or is it more like a thriller, like a supernatural yeah. thriller? And I think it's kind of maybe in between those two. You'll you'll have a similar reaction to the Dead Zone. I see, I see. Um, and of course, I also mentioned Suspiria, and this is a film, a film that I just didn't care for at all. Uh, it's, uh, I found it a lot of style over substance, uh, yeah. or maybe even style at the expense of substance. Uh, there was just, I, I don't know, it just felt meandering. I, got, I didn't care for any of the characters at all. I don't even know, I, I didn't even get the sense that the filmmaker cared about any of the characters. And for all the pomp and ceremony of the whole sort of like uh, supernatural element to it. In the end, it just, it, it turns out, spoiler alert, is just a witch, like a simple witch that he, she just kills. And that's the end of the story. It felt like a, a massive letdown. It's a school of witches and it's part of a wider network of witches from around the world. Is it? I did not, I did not necessarily get that. There are a couple of other films in sort of like this, uh, like she's mother of tears, and then there's another one like mother of sighs and mother of sadness. So I see. you've got Tenebrae, is a not Tenebrae. Um, ah, the one set in a New York apartment complex. Ah, uh, okay, I cannot remember. okay. I, see. I, I mean, I it was a beautiful film to look at. I cannot possibly deny that. Are you, are we're talking about the Dario Argento original, right? Of course, of course, yes, yes. Yeah, if you uh, you might get something out of the remake, um, which is set in Germany, um, I think just after the Cold War as well. So it's a, a link to Monster with that. Okay, I see. Yeah, but yeah, like lots of style, some really memorable moments. I I, I can watch it time and again. I find it very uh, hypnotic in parts when like you've got uh, scenes doused in red and shadows cast on walls and. Uh, yeah, it's great soundtrack where you've got uh, like goblin um, whispering witch over the speakers, and uh, that finale, which is just everything goes bonkers and explodes in flames, is fantastic. Uh, yeah, I I found no joy in any of that. I, I can appreciate it on an intellectual level. Not not all of it. I think it got tiring after a while because it's 
it's sort of like the same visual motifs repeated over and over again. Uh, but yeah. as a novelty, and of course I knew that I knew I knew I had seen pictures, so many pictures of the film, so I kind of knew what to expect. I could appreciate it, but as far as enjoyment goes, it was virtually zero for me. Again, I think I think style over substance is the perfect way to. I have not seen any of the other films, so perhaps maybe they add a little bit of depth to it. Um, I think it's going to be more of the same, to be honest, because Dario Argento isn't necessarily one for like um, grounded stories or, or too much realism. It's all about the atmosphere and being in the moment and some plot twists and like, some of them. And I don't mind the visual flair at all. I don't mind the visual flair at all, but I think... And I, 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 I kind of, I'm proud of saying style over substance, style at the expense of substance, <laughs> because mm. I think that's precisely what this is. I think it's, it's just, it's, it's a filmmaker who doesn't really care about the substance and is sort of treating the film as an exercise. I don't know if this is actually what this was actually going on, but that's how it felt. It felt to me watching is filmmaker who sort of like didn't care at all about it and was simply treating it as an, as a visual exercise. Or the yeah. audiovisual exercise, because he does, like you said, he does some interesting things with, uh, with sound, yeah, with the soundtrack, the sound effects, and all that. And the the whole, uh, I I get, I get, I see, I've read papers. Actually, I read papers about this movie before watching the movies about all sort of like the Freudian interpretations about it. And that's, I mean, there's a fair point to that. I think, I think he is doing something interesting in evoking. Uh, in trying to evoke emotion purely uh, from an audiovisual stimulus as opposed to a narrative, but again, it's it's the, the film is a storytelling medium, so I'm I'm okay with all that. But it, why not reinforce it with an actually good story as opposed to a story that is barely anything, uninteresting characters, cliche characters, tropes, basically, and an uninspired ending. At least that's how I saw it. Okay. So uh, uh, maybe you might get something from the remake then, because uh, it sounds like the remake fills in all those gaps. I am curious to check out the remake. Um, what else? I watched the movie Zardoz. Uh, oh, Sean Connery. With Sean Connery and directed by John Borman, I think, who ended up making some interesting films later in his career. It's like uh, Excalibur and, uh, was it... Um... Uh, yes, he Deliverance. made Deliverance, and he also made uh, another film in the eighties about the bombing of London. Uh, also a great film. Uh, but yeah, so that Zardos was a fun film, you know. It, it's a silly film, a bit nonsensical at times, but I enjoyed it. Yeah, I try, I'm um, trying to think. Um, what, there's one with Lee Marvin that he made as well. Yeah, I and mean, he, he also so, did. Um, didn't he ahead. also do Hell in the Pacific? Don't remember. I can't say that. I, I I've seen. Most I've seen I've seen only a few of his films, like the ones that were mentioned. But uh, you know, he's definitely a well-regarded director. But this was sort of like a his uh, his start, I guess. Yeah, ridiculous costumes, and it was made for apparent uh, apparently a very very low budget. Yeah, but he was. I think I think talking about hypnotic, I did find some of the scenes in Zardoz very hypnotic and very awe-inspiring, especially the opening with that floating head and. Um, I think it's a Beethoven mu piece of music that kind of plays over as the head flies over a, sort of a misty landscape. I thought that was a very beautiful, uh, beautiful uh, shot. <laughs> okay. It's been ages since I watched that film. Yeah. Uh, point, is it Point Blank, the Lee Marvin movie I was trying to think of? Sounds, that sounds like a Lee Marvin movie. Certainly haven't seen it. Let me, okay, I'm definitely going to look this up now. 
point point blank 1967 and uh directed by john borman oh wow sounds because uh zardo's was in the 70s so i didn't realize he had started as early as the 60s because that's a relatively popular movie isn't it hmm and uh hell in the pacific 1968 also directed by john borman and starring toshiro mifune interesting i wonder why he didn't have the the cachet to get a bigger magic budget for zardo's though I just assumed he was like a young filmmaker that didn't have a lot of influence, but I mean, he's already seemed to have had some successes. I wonder why he can get more for Zardos, but eh, who knows? Uh, Zardos is on Disney Plus, apparently. What, who was the studio behind it? Uh, it was a British film. Oh, that, that would explain why it has a small budget. Perhaps. Well, I mean, this, the, the, thing, the thing is, there wasn't, I guess, 1974, I don't remember what the timeline is in terms of uh, in terms of the popularity, but seventies, uh, uh, the 70s saw some increase in popularity for these type of sort of like dystopian science fiction movies, right? I see it like uh, Logan's Run is one L- Logan's of Run and uh, THX that that uh, 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 Luke, Star Wars got is it Lucas, yeah, George Lucas, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and I was uh, about- John Carpenter's um, Dark Star, yeah, yeah, the thing. Uh, it was a bit later, but yeah. Um, Oh yeah, uh, so seventy. So I'm surprised they didn't kind of try. They didn't try to cash in uh, on that. But it's pretty much a film in a in a, a similar vein. It's yeah. just uh, so so all all that is uh, there's nothing nothing particularly different about it. But I think it's a decent film for for I think what it what it really was under the hood. And I'm trying to look up the studio. Production company John Borman Productions Limited, distributed by 20th Century Fox and Fox Rank Distributors. So Ireland, US uh, production. But it was, I think the budget was only like 1 million, well, like a little over a million. Yeah, $1.57 million. Yeah, exactly. And this was also, I think, a point in Sean Connery's career where he was somewhat at a low point. He was kind of, he was still trying to like, find himself after Bond, where he didn't have some of the C70 stuff is questionable. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, and just uh, um, to cut this, uh, to make this short, the, other, the only other thing is after our offline discussion, discussions, I started playing a little bit of Final Fantasy Tactics. Okay. And when I say playing, what I mostly have done so far is set up my, my PS1 emulator fired up the game and started started playing some of the initial the, like the introduction and start trying to get familiar a little bit with the system uh with uh the gameplay the whole battle uh, turn-based battle system that it has yeah how are you finding it uh, it's it's not like most other um, not it's not most it's, it's not like most other final fantasies so it takes i think it takes a bit of you getting used to Oh, uh, expect to put hundreds of hours into it. But ju- uh, just to jump in, I also fired up my um, version of um, ah, what was the game you mentioned last episode? Lunar. No, 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 no. Uh, point and click adventure oh, RPG uh, about combat. I'm still playing that. Uh, 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 Disco Elysium. Disco Elysium. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm at the point where I put all the clothes on in the apartment, and I tried using the shower, but um, I wasn't able to. You fail, yeah. It's it kind of everything is a is a test. Everything is a skill check. Like it's like a pretty much it takes uh from tabletop 
role-playing games, which I, I enjoy. I play a lot, so I kind of didn't mind that. But I can see how others might find that a little bit infuriating because the, the game checks for everything, simple ta- tasks. Well, uh, yeah, have... just smiling. My face is now stuck in a grimace. <laughs> so yeah. how is the rest of the game going to play out? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you can improve your skills and, uh, uh, and uh, maybe retry certain skills. Okay. Yeah, well, I, well, that's locked in. I hope I can uh, improve it, but we'll see. Yeah. All right. Uh, but I think that's our section on media and cultural consumption. Uh, now we can move on to our news segment. And I think there's only like a little bit of news that we have, right? The I think, I don't remember if we mentioned this, but the 27th Busan International Film Festival uh, just uh, happened. Yeah, I, well, we didn't mention it. Um, okay. I actually posted about it on my blog, listing all the Japanese films. That were okay, playing. I see, I see. Uh, but it just ended up as of the time I was recording a couple of days ago, I think. And uh, the winner, when it's announced the winners, is mostly Korean films, right? Hmm. Uh, and a few films that I've never heard of or directors that I haven't heard of. I don't know if any of the Japanese films that you, that you mentioned in your blog won any awards. Uh, a thousand and one nights um, won an award. The Fipreski, um, the Fipreski award, right? Yeah, and uh, that's got Yuko Tanaka and um, ah, the lead actress of Morning Forest, Mariko Ono, I think her name is. The Korean film, A Wild Rumor, seemed to have won a bunch. Seemed to have kind of made a splash. Yeah, I, yeah, Busan is definitely the festival you should keep an eye on if you have an interest in Korean films because what's popular at Busan eventually filters out onto the festival circuit. I see, I see. Yeah, I just had a quick glance at the winners and uh, yeah, I didn't recognize too many of the films, to be honest. Yeah. So it would be great to sort of get into them um, over the next year when they um, get uh, onto the festival circuit. Yeah, the, the director of, uh, of uh, A Wild Rumor who won, I think, the the top awards or whatever is uh i've never heard of him i think he's i think it's maybe a new director maybe a lot of these are new directors because i don't yeah i kind of leafed through the 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 names and i didn't don't think i recognized any 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 of them so of course i'm certainly not not the best for that but popular names will would have probably jumped through if there were any yeah all right so i think that's it we didn't really have any other news uh, to talk about, so that means we can jump straight into our main discussion for the day. And as I mentioned in the introduction, that is uh, Yoji Yamana's Yamada's film, uh, The Twilight Samurai. So as always, Jason, why don't you give us a plot summary uh, or a general summary of the film? So The Twilight Samurai was the first of a trilogy of historical films made by Yoji Yamada. And these films are drawn from Shuhei Fujisawa's short story collection, The Bamboo Sword and Other Samurai Tales. The other films in the trilogy include The Hidden Blade um, and Love and Honor. The stories are set in Edo period Japan, um, which ran from 1603 to 1867, and all of the stories depict the lives of uh, samurai characters. So The Twilight Samurai is set in the dying days of the Edo period. So, uh, and follows a low-ranking samurai named Seibei Iguchi, who's played by Hiroyuki Sanada. Uh, he's a widower who raises two young daughters uh, and supports his elderly mother, who's stricken by dementia, all by himself 
Uh, he's living on a stipend, uh, working as a castle storeroom clerk. Uh, due to his frugality and his uh, care for his family, he's earned the nickname Tasogare Sebe, uh, which translates as Twilight Sebe, uh, because he always goes home at dusk instead of drinking with his workmates. So Sebe finds himself torn between personal desires and clan orders when he first reconnects with his childhood love, Tomoe, who's played by Rie Miyazawa. She's a recently divorced woman who, who harbours feelings for him, and she proves to be a natural mother to Sebe's girls. After de defeating Tomoe's ex-husband in a duel, word of Sebe's sword skills uh, travel across the domain, and it soon uh, puts him in the sights of a faction in the clan who ask him to settle a matter of great importance and kill a samurai who has refused to commit seppuku. The task puts Sebe's new life and happiness at risk, as his target is an expert swordsman, but he cannot duck his responsibility uh, and his duties as a samurai, and uh, he has the incentive to do it because it may get him out of a tremendous amount of debt and even offer him a shot of winning uh, Tomoe's love. So the cast includes Hiroyuki Sanada as Sebe Iguchi, uh, and we've got Rie Miyazawa as Tomoe Inuma, the love interest. Uh, we've got uh, other actors like Mitsuru Fukikoshi um, as uh, Tomoe's brother, uh, Ren Osugi as Tomoe's ex-husband, and Min Tanaka as the expert swordsman. And um, this was uh, written and directed by Yoji Yamada. Also on screen writing duties was Yoshitaka Asama, who's a regular writer for Yoji Yamada, um, starting with the Torasan series and also uh, the... Uh, uh, a couple of other series. Yeah, in terms of awards, it was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film at the 2004 Academy Awards, but it lost to The Barbarian Invasions, the Canadian film. At the Asian Film Critics Association Awards uh, of 2003, uh, Rie Miyazawa won Best Actress. At the Japanese Academy Awards of 2003, it swept the boards by winning Best Film, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actor and Newcomer of the Year for Min Tanaka, and Best Screenplay, as well as Best Cinematography, Best Lighting, Editing, Art Direction, Music Score, and Sound. Just to interject, I think it still to date has the most uh, Japanese Academy Awards wins, 12. If I Don't quote me on that, but it was definitely, I remember reading that it was the highest at the time, and uh, may yeah. not have been beaten since, although, again, don't quote me on that. I think uh, just going back to the Departures episode, that film won many awards except Best Actress. Uh, I see. So it's possible. Uh, I see. Blue Ribbon yep. Awards 2003, it won Best Film, Best Supporting Actress for Rie Miyazawa. At the Hawaii International Film Festival, it won the Golden Male Award for Narrative Feature. At the Ho Chi Film Awards of 2002, it won Best Film. Hong Kong Film Awards 2004, it won Best Asian Film. Kinema Junpo Awards 2003 it won Best Film, New Actor for Min Tanaka, Best Director, Screenplay, Reader's Choice Award. At the Mainichi Film Awards it won Best Film, Cinematography, Lighting, Sound Recording, Nikan Sports Film Awards, Best Film, Actor, Supporting Actress, Director, and at the Udine Faris Film Festival 2004 it took the Audience Award. Yeah, so it certainly did not go unnoticed, this film. Uh, compared to Burning, uh, uh, yeah, it, it did much better. Yeah, this was, I think, perhaps 
departures levels of success in terms of critical recognition at the time. Yeah, and also um, international recognition as well. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. I was, yeah, I was talking to someone in work about um, uh, films we'd recently watched. I mentioned Twilight Samurai, and he was like, "Yeah, I absolutely love that film. It's one of the best Japanese films I've ever seen." Yeah, I, I wouldn't say it's the best I've ever seen, but it certainly, I think, it has a you know a quality about it. Of course, it's Yoji Yamada, director for whom I have a lot of respect. But it's also, I think, it has a certain popular appeal, much like Departures. I wouldn't say to the extent of Departures, but it, it is. It is maybe close. Yeah. Uh, okay, so let's start with our usual question of what's your history with this film? Where did you first watch it? What did you think of it? And what did you think of it upon revisiting it now? So I uh, watched it about a decade ago, I think, um, and I wrote a review on my blog. Um, it was uh, in collaboration with uh, another blogger who suggested we um, review films together. Um, so we both watch a film and then we both review it separately and then we link to each other's reviews. And um, I remember liking it a lot at the time, finding it a very well-told um, samurai story, rich in um, human emotions as well as like the sort of um interplay between the emotions and the sort of samurai duty uh great performances and fantastic fight scenes and um yeah second time i've seen it and it remains an impressive film due to the richness of the historical context and like the themes and the great acting and um direction which really helped bring samurai life to reality on the screen i just um yeah it's uh I would say that in terms of like samurai movies, uh, this would be a great film to introduce uh, others to the genre with. Oh uh, yeah, I, I mean I would agree with a lot of that. It's it's. I was surprised uh, just uh, before I shared my thoughts of the film. I was surprised to find to uh, see the action scenes, not just this one, but the whole trilogy. You know, considering that I don't think Yamada had directed any action. I mean, he's mostly done Torasan, which I don't know if you've seen any of the any of those. No, I haven't seen any of the Torasan movies, and apparently, um, this trilogy of samurai movies uh, were his first historical movies, right? But that that sounds right. I I know he's directed non-Torasan movies, far far and few in between, but he has done them. I'm not aware of any action films that he's done before these, or maybe even after these, uh, or any no, historical I... films either. Yeah, I can't think of any either. It's, uh, oh no, um, historical films, is it uh, Little House, something like that, that won a reward at the Burning Film Festival? I don't remember. I, if, if it is, I certainly haven't seen it. Yeah, I think that's like a World War II era film, which uh, draws upon his memories of World War II. Okay, okay, I mean, fair enough. But I, I've seen a few of the Torah-san movies, and they're very enjoyable for what they are. Uh, and I would actually say they share, I mean, they share a lot of... Uh, thematic elements with the Twilight Samurai, mainly the entire Samurai trilogy, because, you know, Torasan is about a person, a man past his prime, uh, sort yeah. of an, an older gentleman who usually chases after a younger girl and is always disappointed and sort of has to kind of learn to live, to take, to take uh, life as it comes by. And I think the Twilight Samurai is sort of like is the same. It's it's about an era past its prime and an era that's coming to an end. Uh, and we can certainly talk about that. But just to, to dive into my history with the film, I I watched it, I think earlier than you did because I it must have been either two thousand six or two thousand seven. Because I remember it was shortly after the release of the third film in the trilogy, and I watched it. Uh, I watched it the entire trilogy back to back. So Twilight Samurai, The Hidden Blade, and I believe the third film was called Love and Honor. 
Yeah. 2006 or 2007, something like that. 2006. Something like, yeah, that sounds right. I, I rewatched The Twilight Samurai and The Hidden Blade. I could not find a good copy of the Love and Honor movie. So I did not, unfortunately, rewatch that. I do remember at the time, again, this was, you know, like 15 years ago now, enjoying The Twilight Samurai and The Hidden Blade a lot, The Hidden Blade a lot. And I, 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 I remember feeling lukewarm about. Uh, about love and honor i wish i had rewatched it to sort of maybe to try to validate or invalidate those feelings but uh that's what my memory is telling me uh but i re- i do remember enjoying the hidden blade a little bit more back then i thought it was maybe had a little bit more action it's sort of like the drama felt like a little bit more relatable i think now upon rewatching them i think i enjoy them both uh, uh, about more or less equally. I do think the Hidden Blade perhaps has a little bit more popular appeal than the Twilight Samurai, although I can see both of them being very enjoyable for an average audience. Yeah, but yeah, the Hidden Blade has like you know it has some uh, scenes that I I think <laughs> appealing, like the whole going back to the master and training, um, uh, and then the 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 fight scene is a little bit more exciting, a little bit longer. Of course, I guess he learned from the first film since he had never directed any action before. Uh, but it was also the the one thing that kind of hit me up on rewatching is how similar these two films are. Like the Hidden oh. Blade follows almost beat for beat the kind of the, the outline of the first film. Like even to yeah. certain elements. Like I think the masters in both films have the same name, Toda. Okay, like I can't the, remember the names of the masters. I don't but. can't remember the 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 second one. I remember because it's the most the one that I watched most recently. But the first one, I believe, both the samurai in the first film and the second film were played by different actors, uh, although they kind of look similar in many ways. Um, so Min Tanaka plays the master in the second one, and he plays like uh, the expert swordsman who's the target of the hit in the first one. Yeah, no, I mean, the master does not make an appearance in the first one. He's just mentioned that he studied under. Oh, like the sword school, yeah. Yeah, the short sword school. Whereas this one, it's the, you know, not the short sword, but he teaches them the hidden blade or the devil's claw or whatever it is called. Uh, yeah. But I think they both have the same name. Of course, in the first one, we don't see him. Uh, both of them get uh, have like a climax in a house where the uh, the antagonist is sort of like clo- is trapped in or, or, or shut in. And surrounded um, by, yeah, uh, yeah. Other both samurais. of them get in both films. They get injured in the left arm during the fight. Yep. What else? Uh, there's so many, so many common things. Both forced to take on a mission by uh, officials higher up. Exactly. Both of them have uh, uh, samurai who want to quit and become farmers. Like in the first one, it doesn't happen, uh, but he says at some point in the dialogue, uh, uh, "What's his name?" I keep saying first one, second one, but. Sebei Iguchi. Sebei, Sebei, which is an easy name to remember. He says that at some point, in, about in the middle of the film, says, you know what, I think after all this calms down, I'll, I'll just renounce my status and become a farmer. That's really what I want to do. Yeah. In the second one, of course, he does that, but also his master has done that, right? Where he's laughed yeah. at by, in that one meeting where they ask him about um, the the traitor. Yeah, like they both, the, both the traitor and the main character studied under the swords master and the sword master has uh become a farmer renounced yeah. his samurai yeah. status so there there's a lot of parallel and i wish i'd watched the third one i think the third one has to do with a samurai who goes blind or something like that 
Yeah, but the samurai... I haven't seen the film. I've only read the plot synopsis, but the samurai sort of uh, goes blind, but refines his passion for life, his form, by uh, going back into his samurai training and uh, entering into a sword fight. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think all of them are good films, but I think the third one maybe doesn't have quite the popular appeal uh, as the first two. But anyway, uh, so to, to talk about what is our main... Uh, our main subject for the episode, which is the Twilight Samurai, even though I think we will end up comparing them a lot to, with The Hidden Blade because of how uh, sort of parallel these two films are. I And this is something that Yamada, I think, is a master on, is to kind of elevate the drama of simple, mundane moments of characters. Yeah. Like, of course, in both films, the stakes are elevated and become life and death eventually, but in the Twilight Samurai especially, the whole first half of the film, the stakes are almost non-existence, right? I mean, the, the whole drama is centered around him smelling bad or something like that, or him not having the time to go out drinking, drinking with friends or anything like that. Like, these are things that, you know, in any, uh, uh, you know, normally people you shouldn't care about as an audience, but you end up doing it because of how Yamada is able to sort of really connect with the characters, sort of like what makes them sort of like like the mundane aspects of humanity so important, and everybody can relate with that, of course. Yeah, the uh, Twilight Samurai features narration from his daughter, uh, his youngest daughter, Ito, who's able to relate um, like the difficulties that the family faced um, in terms of like being heavily in debt and... Um, the father having to go around uh, with clothes that are torn. Um, and uh, Yoji Yamada uh, focuses a lot on uh, sort of sm uh, details, like the camera will pick out. Yeah, as you said, there's a lot of uh, detail um, uh, looking at the social context and Seibei's position as a sort of a lower class samurai who's struggling financially because he's in debt due to the death of his wife. Um, it all starts with uh, narration of his daughter um, laying out just how bad the situation is and uh, because they've had to um, uh, have an expensive funeral and um, he doesn't earn that much from his stipend uh, as a samurai so he can't afford to go drinking and we get uh, numerous scenes of his workmates sort of quietly mocking him because of it. We get the camera focuses a lot on his costume, on the costume which features like uh, dirt and grime and tears and uh, holes in his socks for example so uh like audiences will be able to relate to that quite easily um and uh and then this plays into like wider samurai society because he has to keep up an appearance uh he has to look good uh at the feudal lord says to set an example for the peasant class essentially and uh yeah i think audiences are able to relate to it a lot especially like the scenes of the workplace uh, like it's like a, a wide shot of like the office where all the samurai uh, who are basically sort of like um civil servants uh are, are like sat around on their de uh with their desks and doing their calculations and you've got the boss overseeing it and w when i was watching those scenes i felt like yeah like a modern japanese audience or a modern international audience who works in an office uh, will be able to relate to like that setup and like having to go drinking with workmates to build team spirit and um, anybody who's suffered suffering financial hardship or no, you know, they'll be able to relate to uh, not being able to go out uh, drinking with friends. And uh, yeah, 
um, it's made at a time when like uh, 2012, like Japan's economy isn't so great and uh, people are forced, you know, pe- even now people are forced to go out drinking with their friends and uh, it's an imposition many find. So there's a lot to relate to with this film that's really well delivered by the narration and like the camera work which lingers on like details of costuming and also like it gives so much information about um, the way a lower class samurai would live, especially a widower where he has to take on the, a woman's role and sort of uh, do like uh, the farming and and uh, like little uh, piecemeal work to make ends meet. So there's all of this rich detail that make us relate to the characters. And then you see he's got this great interaction with daughters where he genuinely cares for them. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, again, I, you, you know, you know me, I appreciate subtlety, subtlety, not more than everything, but it is something when done well, I think it really pays off. And I think that's what Yamada does. Of course, um, as the, you know, the, the stakes are low, uh, but they low low. That's not to say that's a negative thing. It's just they, they're more mundane. They're more they're more human. They're more everyday. Uh, but then yeah. of course they get elevated, and they're under the whole thing. There's this undercurrent, this sort of like uh, this conflict between nostalgia and the inevitability of change, right? Because we are experiencing an end of an era. We are experiencing an, an end of an era that looked like a certain caste or the, the a certain class. Sam the samurai sort of community is sort of like refusing to let go by the skin of their teeth and yet it's sort of like uh, at the same time refusing to acknowledge that it's that it's already you know gone it's just not the same and it is it is just in an inevitable before it kind of the people do away with it entirely because that's what happens when the emperor meiji comes right that's his name yeah so this film is set Around 1865, because the narration at the end says he dies. Uh, oh, uh, ooh, spoiler alert! Uh, he uh, he gets involved in the Boshin War, the Civil War. Okay, so the Boshin War of 1868. So the film is set around 1865, and the end narration says Sebei takes part in the Boshin War of 1868. So that's like three years in the future, and then you have the Meiji Restoration where the emperor ascends to the throne and like the caste system with like uh, the emperor at the top uh, with the nobility and then the shogun who's got the real political power like the shogun's out of the picture now and um, like the feudal lords and the samurai class um, and the peasantry like this all of this um, uh, like uh, social uh, caste is like um, pulled away for what should be a more egalitarian era and um, uh, you know like People like the Burakamin are still discriminated against tremendously. Um, people like samurai, you know, it's from samurai families, like they still sort of carry that, but it doesn't have as much of a status effect for them in a new age. Yeah. And I think one of the greatest symbol that I think the film utilizes is, which is revealed again at the end, is the fact that he sold his sword and what he's carrying around is, you know, fake. It's like a bamboo replacement, but that's like a really great touch because in so many samurai films, like Sword of Doom, uh, they say like the sword is the soul of a man, and you can see like the killer in him has, has gone. He wants to be live a peaceful life. Yeah, but I think that also goes to show how you know he lives in an era where he could reasonably expect to never have to to be caught with that, right? To never be discovered because, again, it's the inevitability of change. It's the fact that the samurai, the era of the samurai is over. They're just living. Everybody recognizes that they're living at the end of it, even though they're not going to admit it. And in fact, they do admit it because so many times 
especially, and this is maybe a little bit more explicit in the second film where they say, you know, things are going to change. The word change is used explicitly so many times over the film. So I think they are aware of it, but they're just trying to, like I said, just hold on to at least the, the, the social aspect of it. So, so well, yeah. tight. Yeah, the bamboo sword also plays into like his poverty as well because he had to sell of his course, sword of course, in yes. order to make ends meet. Um, there's also signs of change that his daughters are now using, uh, are now learning like about Confucius society and uh, like the stuff that he learned. And this is a, this is an era when um, like samurai were effectively civil servants. There's been like uh, centuries of peace, and um, like aside from uh, like. Uh, like a few uprisings there isn't that much call for violence and he could reasonably expect to sort of live out his days peacefully but then he's placed in this high stakes situation at the very end where he actually has to call upon his skills and like you said the second film The Hidden Blade is much more on the nose about it because you have the younger generation samurai arguing with the older generation samurai about how western weaponry uh, is uh, now taking over and uh, yeah it's got that like, like, essentially, a gun settles uh, the affair at the very end. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, I do think that he killed him, right? He sliced him in the stomach. I mean, I, the gun was just overkill. I think. Uh... Like he's already, he was already dead. I think. I don't know. I don't. I mean, that's. I mean, I guess you could interpret it that he was a superficial cut, but I don't think so. I think he sliced him good there. What What I got from it was it wasn't a killing blow. So, and he was preparing to maybe uh, use it again or. Something like I that. I think you could maybe interpret it that way, but I don't know. I just don't see how that clean cut right through the stomach was not killing. Like, I, I that's what they say. Like he says, I wasn't me who killed him. He was your guns or your new guns or something like that as a, almost as an insult to the Lord. But I just, yeah, I don't no know. Sa- I, no samurai wants to die by a gun. They want to die by a sword. And that's like the whole tension of the fight. I just have no way to plot. Like, I, I think if they wanted to make that an on-killing blow... They would have maybe, you know, maybe he would catch him in the thigh or something or in the, like, some, I, like, I was just a clean, straight cut blow through the gut. I just don't see how anybody could survive that. Although, I guess, I don't know, maybe that was just one of the things that requires a bit of a suspension of disbelief. Yeah, samurai were built of sterner stuff back then. <laughs> it's still flesh. I don't know. Anyway. But I mean, it's <laughs> It's irrelevant. just a flesh wound. Yeah. It's all, but yeah, I think the, the the you're right. I think the first film is a bit more subtle about that. I mean, there's everything. All those elements are the same, but it's a bit. I think like there's guns right in the in the first one, but they're not as prominent to the story. The guns are like your typical samurai guns, like flintlock, I, I guess. Um, whereas in the second one, they've got repeater rifles that are Western made, and they're dressing in sort of um, Western uniforms and marching and uh, like. Uh, formations western formations so it's much more on the nose about it like yeah. western technology is going to overtake everything yeah th- we've got to remember that at this point admiral perry has like blown down the doors and demanded uh like uh unequal treaties and the british have bombarded um japanese towns and um uh, decimated like uh samurai clan so uh yeah this race to sort of westernize is just beginning uh just before the meiji period you know the westerners essentially and the sort of colonial expansion set in place like the catalyst for um uh, the Meiji Restoration, one might say. Yeah, but the Japanese were never colonized, if I'm not mistaken. Were they? <laughs> they were never. The British... They were. 
the uh, British military, I think the British military tried to claim bases in Japan. Okay, but uh, maybe perhaps the, the emperor, the consolidation of the forces by the emperor was what prevented that. I'm guessing. I don't, again, yeah, don't quote well, me Yeah, that. the whole Meiji restoration was like this great leap forward. Uh, sorry to use the term, but it was like in order to, like they looked at what happened to China thanks to the British and the French and the Opium Wars. And they were like, we don't want that to happen. We've got to modernize as quickly as possible. Yes, absolutely. And of course, I think related to that is, and this just occurred to me as I was watching this time, but I was hearing right from the start, I was hearing the narration, which is from one, the youngest of the Ito. Uh, of the daughters, right? Yeah, Ito. Uh, exactly. And I was thinking, okay, but what year is it now that she's telling the story? And that's... Uh... An, I, I, I mean, she's pretty old. We see her in the end. That she's pretty old. She must be at least 60 or 70. So that yeah. means that she must be telling that story through right before or during World War II. Uh, no, 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 it can't be because this is happening in 1860s, the 1860s. Yes, so, so 60, 60 years later, it's the 20s years, or, or 1920s, 70s would be the, the 30s. Ni yeah, 1920s. So this would have seen Japan rise. Now, you've got to remember, like Japan got Western experts to modernize their military and um, like their postal service and their financial systems, and they became the first sort of non-European country to become a, a great power and actually take out another Western uh, a Western. Uh, country like Russia, they took yeah, out Russia. But by the twenties, I think Japan has already started started the invasion of uh, mainland Asia. Uh, no, uh, I think so. Yeah, the Sino Korea, the Korean Korea, Peninsula. Ex exactly. So it was just even like, like it. It had to be the twenties at the earliest. So I think I think there's something about that. Uh, about that that I think like the film contains I'm not sure what it is but I think there is something about that if it's if we assume that this is okay this is the new Japan this is we're telling a story about the transition from the old Japan to the new Japan and we're telling the story now right as Japan is starting its aggressive uh and of course uh, later on inhumane uh expansion militaristic expansion uh, that would lead to a major uh, well, that that didn't lead to the World War II, but it was certainly a big factor of it. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, you could say they've learned the lessons that the West have placed in front of them, and now they're um, expanding into Korea and Taiwan and so forth. Like they've learned from the best. Yeah, and I think I think the 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 second film is a lot more tongue in cheek about it, or <laughs> maybe a lot more uh, satirical about it. Where he says, uh, "There's a line of dialogue in the Hidden Blade where the guy, the new samurai. I mean, they're still all samurais." somehow but the new samurai is teaching them like uh like how to use the new weapons and how to march which is a pretty funny a pretty funny scene uh, yeah but it's like it's, the british way of marching versus the samurai way of marching and then here they have that race which I, yeah. I, I i can never stop laughing watching him run uh which is ridiculous but um um uh, i was gonna say oh yeah and he says there's a line that says well while we have sought we we have sought still using swords to fight the uh, the the western militaries have used their uh genius to perfect the the weapons of war something i'm paraphrasing but it's very close to what he actually says yeah 
it's not the skill of a fighter, just the uh, level of equipment, the sophistication. And the yeah. older samurai are like, it's all about the skill of a fighter. You've got to be able to stand up with your sword and your spear and your bow and arrow. And the younger samurai say, that doesn't matter so much in this new age. Yeah, but I, I do. I did find a little bit. I mean, I don't know how historically accurate it is. I did find it a little bit strange that J- the Japanese samurai would be so resistant because I mean, Japan has been using shooting weapons since the thirteen, fourteen hundreds. So yes, these are more a lot more sophisticated. But I still, I, I don't know. I, fi- I found it a little bit hard to believe that they would be so resistant to it. You know, because it's just it seemed to me just a a progression of something they already have, not something completely new and transformative. It's country bumpkin samurai and crotch the old man who don't yeah, want to Yeah, so I think it's a bit, maybe a bit over-exaggerated for comedic yeah. effects. Yeah, that's, that's how I saw it. I, think, I do think that there is an intention there from the writers and, the, and Yamada to include the narration to kind of maybe give that framing device uh, as an extra layer of interpretation about, yes, this led to this and i don't think he's necessarily being all the old ways are better it's more of a a recognition about you know the inevitability of change but also the 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 detriments of progress the the benefits of progress but also the the downsides of progress which led to what was you know a terrible terrible war and a lot of inhumane uh and um war crimes that happened since then up to 1945 yeah yeah, just terrible things inflicted upon uh, people across Asia and inside Japan itself because of like this militaristic mindset that um, came about. Yeah, I mean, if you want to see about sort of like sort of like the betrayal that a lot of Japanese people felt from this government, Kinji Fukasaku is one of the better filmmakers who really explores that topic in many of or his even films. Nobuhiko Obayashi. Who has explored it as well? Uh, absolutely, like I'm, his... I'm less familiar with him, but you're right. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, like his last film, like uh, has depictions of samurai, uh, samurai, um, Japanese soldiers in World War Two, sort of um, brutalizing and uh, attacking Okinawans in the dying days of the war. Yeah, I don't know if you've seen Masaki Kobayashi's Harakiri. No, I have not seen that one. It's been a while, but there is a lot of overlap between that and also, I think, The Twilight Samurai, because in that one, again, there's, it's a film about uh, like a low, a petty samurai family who's come into financial hardships, and the guy, the one, the younger guy is, is forced to, to sell his sword in order to provide yeah. for his family, uh, but that's not enough. So he, of course, he replaces the sword with a bamboo sword, which is what the overlap with The Twilight Samurai, but then what he does is he goes, he goes to rich, uh, he's a ronin, I, I don't think he's a samurai, I think he's a ronin, uh, but he goes to, to, to rich samurai lords or shoguns, is that what uh, they are? Uh, so it would be like uh, daimyo or feudal daimyo, lord. Yes. And commits, uh, like, uh, asks to commit harakiri in their court as a way to gain honor, but of course what he really hopes is that they will just give him some money and send him away. Uh, and of course, he finally comes to a, a malicious lord who actually asks him to commit harakiri, but he cannot because he has replaced the uh, his sword with a bamboo sword. So there's that yeah. whole scene about him humiliating himself, trying to cut himself open with uh, with a bamboo sword, and of course he can, and he ends up dying, uh, dying terribly and humiliatingly. And of course, the, the main story is about this person's uncle. 
who goes does the same thing but then asks uh, it eventually ends up uh, taking revenge and of course the yeah. uncle is played by the great uh Epi uh, Epi Kawa no Ichi, it's, is it Epi? it's Tatsuya oh, I'm sorry I'm thinking of Mikkei I'm thinking of the Mikkei remake yeah yeah it's a, yeah I haven't seen the remake but I, I I'm pretty sure it's Tatsuya Nakadai yeah, the the Mike remake is on Amazon Prime, and, I, and the last time I watched it, it was free. It's for okay. anybody listening. Uh, I I I I haven't seen it. I suspect uh, as as with Mike, it's probably a lot more violent than the original. Uh, yes, probably. Uh-huh. I haven't seen the original, so I can't really say. I mean, the original is the ma- is a masterpiece. It's one of, uh, I think my maybe my top ten Japanese films. Yeah. But it, it goes because I also think that is happens late in sort of like samurai history, in late in like sort of like the like maybe eighteen hundred or something, where again there's this sort of like realism versus um, versus uh, sort of like those this whole concept of of samurai honor or the bushido code or whatever it is that it that dictates all these behavioral um, predicates predicaments. I suppose at that time, like samurai were really struggling as a class. You had the rise of the merchants who had more money, and the samurai uh, were struggling financially. And there were like so many ronin that they would all gather together uh, at uh, or wander around, and they became the stuff of legends. Yeah, and I think there's uh, you, you mentioned the merchants, and I think in the second film, uh, the servant. That's what she ends up marrying, right? Like one of these merchant families who is very wealthy. Yeah, and a horrible mother-in-law. But mistreat her, and she ends up getting back or something like I don't know, something like that. I forget exactly. But but yeah, so I think I think you're right. I think it's the, the Twilight Samurai touches on all these subjects in I think in in a great way, while also remain focused on the sort of like central drama of Sebe. Yeah, his personal life, his relationship with his family, and he, like the poverty that they live in is always kept in focus. And then you've got the the whole tension that he has with his duty as a samurai uh, on the periphery. You've got the politics uh, happening down in Ezo, slowly filtering back to the uh, the land that they live in. And then it reaches like the crescendo at the climax, where it all comes together. He has to stake everything on this one final battle. Yeah, yeah, and and I mean, there's some really memorable moments like. Um... For example, like I did mention, I, like it was 2006 when I last watched this movie, and when I tried to watch this one, I remember I I didn't remember a lot of it, but I remember two particular moments very very well. I remember the fight by the river where he essentially humiliates that uh, uh, Tomoe's uh, ex-husband. Tomoe's ex-husband, right? With the, he's using a stick and the other guy's using a real sword, and he just kind of bumps in the head. I remember that very vividly. I think that's a very memorable scene, very well directed scene. That's a uh, one-take scene as well, isn't it? I, I, is it? Yeah, that might, you might be right, yes. Um, and the other thing I remembered is how the... What's the title of that guy that he fights at the end? Because he meets him again earlier, right? Uh, let me look up the names. So he it's, it. Yeah, there's foreshadowing because he beats the guy at the river and it finds out, he finds out that the guy in the river is friends with Zenomon Yogo, who's played by Min Tanaka, who's like an expert swordsman. Yeah, but he also and has a title. He's, he's like target. the chief retainer or something like that. He's like has some official title in the castle. 
Yeah, he's like an uh, uh, important guy with the guards, essentially. Exactly, yeah. And he's asking, and this is, again, this is kind of like a throwback to sort of like uh, old school samurai where he's, he wants to sort of like uh, ask Samar for a match in order to kind of uh, to test his skills in swordsmanship. Uh, yeah. Something that, you know, nobody does in this world of that, of the, where the film takes place, nobody does anymore. Yeah, yeah jewels are forbidden. Exactly, exactly. That's, that's an explicit line in the film. But anyway, to go back to what I was saying, so that was, the river was the first memorable scene that I remember very well, and the second one is in the fight, how he dies, where he tries to attack him, the sword gets stuck in, the, in one of the, the wooden uh, boards Beans. in the ceiling, uh, and he just slices him, slices him up in his belly or something like that. So I remember yeah. that. I remember that very, very, that particular shot very, very well. And uh, yeah, Min Tanaka's got a background as a dancer and like his death rows really, really well choreographed and played out by Min Tanaka. Just very vivid uh, sense of a guy dying, his life ebbing out and like gra- grasping at the surroundings as, as like the light uh, fades from his eyes. Just fantastic death scene. And also, just to, to go back to my earlier argument, I mean, he, he gets exactly the same blow that the guy gets in the, in the hidden blade. So if this guy dies, then that guy must die as well. Because it's <laughs> almost exactly the same slash. It's a slash right across horizontal, horizontal sword right across the belly. So, it, I mean, it's exactly the same. If the one person dies, I don't know. Anyway. It's a mortal wound, but he can still keep going. Yeah, I mean, maybe he has a couple of more swings in his hand, but he was clearly not going to do much. I mean, yes, I guess they chopped his hand off with that gun, with a gunshot, but... And you can't be more explicit about how weaponry is advanced than that. Yes, absolutely. But yeah, but that fight scene um, uh, with uh, Xenomon, it's just fantastically shot. Just like uh, some rapid edits in it. Um, and like great physicality because Hiroyuki Sanada's uh action star in Japan, um, like loads of action movies and uh, just being thrown around the set and uh, you, like his life is on the line. You really get that sense in the in this fight. Again, like another thing, another similarity with the second movie is uh, the option to run away in the yeah, just go across the mountains. Yeah, exactly. Mountains again, the same exact, almost the same dialogue. The only difference is the. The first film he asks for it, whereas in the second film his wife asks for it. Yeah, that it's not just the fight that is excellent in that scene, as you mentioned, but it's also like the drama about you know they come in, they sit down. It feels very like you know Kurosawa style samurai, where they have the tension building up before the duel. Of course, here it's a little bit more grounded because he's you know they clearly both afraid. Uh, they're they're discussing they're saying what should we do he says you should run i should run let me run and then uh of course you can see seibei initially is skeptical but he eventually decides to let him run but the uh zenemon has kind of been offended and doesn't doesn't consider that an option anymore like his honor won't allow it it's kind of like uh like two guys just being real with each other like audiences can be like watching them and say, yeah, we don't really believe in this stuff, but we have to go through with it anyway. Yeah, and I think that's where exactly we first find out that the, he's replaced his real sword with a bamboo. And I guess I don't understand, I'm, I'm not necessarily understanding the significance of why they have two swords. 
uh, one is 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 one the family sword and the other one is the fighting sword or is his expertise swords the short sword and the long sword um yeah i i off the top of my head i can't think of anything i'd have to research it yeah same and the other thing i didn't understand is and this is exactly the same in the second film is why everybody's head is shaved but he's kind of let let a little stubble grow mm. is that just an indication of of him just being uh doesn't keep up with his grooming routine or is it a status thing i would uh, we're talking about saving now right well, both. They both have the same exact thing. So even the, the main character in the second film, the Hidden Blade, he also doesn't have... Because they, they all have, like, you know, full head on the sides, but they've shaved the top of the middle of their head, right? Yeah. And he is just... Tri- like, he probably looks like he shaved it and then didn't bother to shave it again. Well, it's kind of like in Twilight Samurai, I saw it as unkempt. But you see it in many samurai movies, like there'll be some actors who still have hair. Like in um, Gohato, Tadanobu Asano has this fantastic mane of hair. And um, you see Ryuhei Matsuda, he has these beautiful locks that make all the other samurai fall in love with him. Yeah, well, yeah, but I I think that's certainly, uh, I mean, that's a great film. I I mentioned it, right? Didn't I mention it a few uh, episodes ago because that, as an example, cherry tree Uh, symbolism? Yeah, cutting down the cherry tree, uh, Takeshi Kitano. Yeah, yeah because of loss yeah. of innocence. Great way to end the film, but I, I don't, I wouldn't. As far as realistic, I don't think anybody. Oh no, it's highly theatrical, like the costumes and the sets and the lighting. I always took it as if you, if you are a Ronin, you're allowed to grow your hair out, but the moment you join a clan, you have to shave the top of your head. That's why. That's what I always thought. Yeah, this is something that. Uh, uh, bears more research i guess yeah i mean the the bushido ways are complicated <laughs> indeed speaking of which it reminds me of um uh completely unrelated but uh, the 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 fake bushido code in the samurai oh yeah like hunting a tiger the samurai is the most lonely that was mentioned at the beginning of the korean movie um bittersweet life was oh, so no you mentioned that in relation to a bittersweet life because it that one also starts with a fake quote. Possibly, yes, possibly. But uh, just, yeah, but it's I don't know. Like I just uh, I, we I said Bushido, and it made me remember of that. But yeah, so it's uh, there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot here about you know I don't know if the specific social constraints that they um, they have here is really. I think Bushido code is more about how to fight rather than you know what is socially acceptable behavior for samurai. Yeah, uh, but I think that's different. I think that's maybe Confucianism or something like that, or uh, derived from it. Uh, but still, there's you know that's so much of the tension in this film, and maybe in the whole trilogy is sort of derived from that, uh, from from sort of just you know like things that a modern audience wouldn't necessarily identify with. But uh, Yamada uh, does such a great job at kind of really uh, portray what it is that the characters struggle with. Yeah, like and also like bringing a real naturalism to the film with like lots of long shots on the landscape showing the characters interacting uh with like furniture and accoutrements and items uh and like taking the time to observe and uh like i was watching a lot of all these small details and it made me think of all the times i went to museums in japan and saw boxes and swords and so forth and wondered how they all fit together and this film really visualizes it and then it puts it into the story of this impoverished, unkempt samurai. 
and uh, how he's struggling to keep it all together. Uh, it's just fantastic uh, at bringing samurai life to the screen. Interesting to note that this was uh, filmed in Yamagata Prefecture, one of the filming locations, and set in Yamagata Prefecture, which is where um, Departures was also filmed and set. Oh, I see. I see. Okay, interesting. Interesting. Um, well, another along the lines of what you're saying, one thing that kind of struck me is how there's a separate robe that he has to wear for the fighting. Yeah, something more ceremonial. Ceremonial, yes. Which is again, there's, I think it's done. There's an extra level of irony there because it again, until now, it's the sort of like the pointlessness of all this ceremony, and yet it is kind of like his chosen path that he has to obey. Yeah, it's also his best kept set of clothes. <laughs> He's never had to use it before. Yeah, yeah. It's a nice touch. I, I did find it a little bit peculiar that, again, the closing narration where she says, well, three years later, he fought in the Civil War and blah, blah, blah. Well, I, I, I didn't find it interesting that he didn't quit samurai right after he killed uh, Zenemon and he married Tomue and he, he should have quit and become a farmer. I wonder why he didn't do that maybe he got an increase in his wage after he did that mission so maybe he was less inclined to do it i don't know but it seemed it seemed a little bit strange yeah yeah the one of the conditions well one of the rewards of doing that mission was presumably he gets a, a bigger paycheck yes one thing you mentioned sort of like the the cinematography and the shots of the landscapes and the simplicity of it i think the one that the one thing where i think hidden blade has a little bit more of as some uh, the cinematography of the Hidden Blade, I think, is a little bit more accomplished. Has a better, better composition, like a bit, a bit better. Uh, shows a little bit more care towards you know composing the 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 shots of the of the people and the landscapes of the film, especially that final duel where In you the, go you're talking to about that, the Hidden Blade, the Hidden Blade, yeah, where you go where you it's like it just feels like it's a much larger scale, much larger vista. I mean, which also kind of makes sense, right? Bigger film, yeah. second film, popular first film. It was inevitable. Yeah, and this, and the, yeah, the, the Twilight Samurai is all about like essentially like uh, domesticity, I suppose. And you've got all these great interior scenes. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. In terms of like showing samurai life, is very good. Um, showing uh, like uh, the the hidden blade goes into much more depth in terms of like how different levels of the caste system didn't really interact with each other. I think like uh, there's a, a scene in Twilight Samurai where Tomoe takes the girls to like the merchant quarters uh, the, uh, and uh, they, they see like a festival and uh, she mentions how this isn't this this doesn't happen for Samurai. Whereas uh, in the Hidden Blade like the whole love story is about two people from different castes and like uh, how difficult it is for them to realize their love. Yeah, and even in terms of the time frame, it feels like uh, the Twilight Samurai is sort of a lead up to the time of change, whereas the Hidden Blade feels like it's happening right at the edge, right as things yeah. are changing. I don't know if that also coincides with the years that these movies are respectively set in, but that's the st like at least that part of the story feels as though it's largely the same story as we talked about, but you know, this one's happening before the change and this one's happening at the change. Yeah. And then, uh, like, uh, a lot of the sort of politics of the era, such as, like, the different factions in the Tokugawa Shogunate and whether to open up to foreigners or not is uh, 
explored a lot in many samurai movies because a lot of them find themselves set in the tail ends of the Edo period. And they include the um ah uh, the use of the paramilitary force, uh the Shinsengumi, like the shogun's sort of paramilitary force. Um whereas the Twilight Samurai and the Hidden Blade forego showing that sort of uh, uh aspect of it. Yeah, yeah. It is interesting in the that in for example the I mean there's are different things that lead to the same conclusion, but in the Twilight Samurai uh, the the problem with uh, Zenemon is that he's asked to commit seppuku and he refuses. Whereas yeah. the second one, he he would rather commit seppuku at least initially, but he's not granted that privilege until he's forcibly locked in a uh, in a cage in order to be humiliated. Yeah, that's like he's brought back to the domain. Whereas the other conspirators have been forced uh, to commit suicide, and like the hero in the second was desperately trying to get his friend to die by the sword, as a samurai should. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's it's sort of like also have have both both courses of actions have different connotations for you know the motivation of the villain or the antagonist in sort of like the final battle. Yeah. Uh, okay. So let's talk about sort of like the awards that this film has won and has received. So obviously there's the big one, which is the Oscar, which has only got nominated. I, I do think it deserved the nomination. Uh, regarding the win, I, I haven't seen Barbarian Invasions. I saw it in the cinema at the time of release. And there's, I, I, I liked it at the time. And there's one scene that still sticks with me. Um, uh, like the daughter's on a sailing ship and she's talking to her parents. It's just like the sense of losing uh, parents is really strong with it. Um, I'd have to rewatch it again just to see if it deserved to win uh, Best Foreign Language Film. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I would say the same thing is that I have to, I, I didn't see it. I have to watch it. But, you know, The the Twilight Samurai is, a, I think, a great film. Um, but I don't... It did not necessarily you know, blow, blew my mind, blow my mind or anything like that. I don't know if you share the same, uh, the same feeling as, as, as all, you know, like in the history of Japanese films. And I don't know if you saw the video that I sent you. Of, uh, uh, yeah. Yoji Yamada at Tokyo International Film Festival. Yeah. Where he's saying, well, he's, I guess he's specifically speaking to Japanese people where he's, he's essentially saying what a great history Japanese cinema has had. And it's how so respected, uh, from, uh, by the sort of international cinematic community when people think of japan they think of the cinema of japan yeah and i in in that vein i don't know that twilight summary is necessarily going to make my top list but i think it is a solid film it is a sort of an important film if you want to sort of like dive deeper into the japanese uh japanese history and i do think i'm I'm glad that it got some recognition i also don't know what else was released sort of both in japan and in asia in 2003 of course 2003 was a great film for asia uh, oh wait, was this two thousand three or two thousand two? Two thousand two. So is that around the time of Infernal Affairs? Yeah. Although uh, two thousand, it, it was nominated for the two thousand three awards. So I guess it got to the U.S. a year later. Yeah. In two thousand three, of course, you had it, just Korean cinema had a fantastic year, right? It was Old Boy, uh, Memories of Murder, uh, the uh, that um, horror movie about the twin sisters, uh, not the twin sisters, the a Tale of Two Sisters. A Tale of Two Sisters. That was also a great movie. Spring, Summer, Fall, Winter, and Spring by Kim Ki Duke. Another, you know, masterpiece in my opinion. So, two thousand three alone. Two thousand two. Two thousand two in terms of 
Japan, you've got Juon, The Grudge, uh, A Snake of June, The Cat Returns, Dolls by Takeshi Kitano. Dolls, that's the only one that I, 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 I knew off the top of my head as a, as, a 2000, uh, as a 2000 film, as a 2002 film from that year from Japan. Oh, Dark Water by Hideo Nakata. Uh, when the Last Sword is Drawn uh, by um, uh, the guy that did Departures. Yes, I remember that. that I thought that was 2003. Yeah, I thought it was later as well, but apparently it's listed as 2002. Okay, that, that's also a decent movie. I think it's has maybe sort of in the similar vein as uh, as uh, as Twilight Samurai. I, I also remember I watched it around the same year. Obviously, I think I was I was in a very much in a phase that around that time where I I was seeking out a lot of these of these films. Also, Hero was released in 2002. Okay, by Jing uh, Zhang uh, Zimu Yang. Uh, but yeah, I guess maybe if we look uh, a lot of movies that were released that year, I don't, maybe not that many remarkable movies. Of course, the ones that we mentioned, like uh, like Infernal Affairs, were great. Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance was released in 2002. O- Oasis, the uh, Li Changdong Li Chang- Li Chang- film, which is, was remarkable, but it's not the kind of film that would have made international uh, international, a big international splash. Public Enemy, which is another popular South Korean film. I've reviewed the first one. The you're talking about Public Enemy? Yeah, I haven't watched the second one though. I I watched all three or four at one point, but not none none of them have made made a huge had a huge effect on me. They were you know decent popular cinema, you know, kind of in the vein of. In the vein of uh, Siri, the the ninety nine big action blockbuster Korean film. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I guess I guess in the context that that uh, that it was released, maybe this was one of the best Asian films. Um, how this gets nominated and Infernal Affairs doesn't is a bit of a mystery to me. But I don't know who who knows. I don't know if uh, if Hong Kong even submitted that. Apparently, Ping Pong was also released in two thousand and two. The adaptation of the manga. That's a funny film. Never seen it. Never heard of it. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. And there's a TV anime made out of it. Okay, interesting. I've, I've never... The poster kind of looks... Seems to ring a bell, but I certainly haven't seen it. So another question that I wanted to ask you, of course, these movies, the trilogy, a relatively popular trilogy in the West, certainly very popular in Japan. Uh, do you think it influenced another movie that came out in 2006? And I don't know if you if you know what I'm talking about, but it starred a certain Tom Cruise. Oh, um, The Last Samurai. Samurai, which I, I, I did not enjoy that movie at all. I saw that at cinema. Do you think this, this may have influenced the, that movie at all? Because it, it also kind of takes place at a similar time, time frame, and it has uh, sort of similar themes, if you, if you can say that. And I think it, that takes place during the Civil War. Yeah, the samurai getting crushed by Western uh, trained forces. Yeah, and that, I think that movie, for one thing, it overly romanticizes uh, the samurai. But again, obviously, it's it's a Hollywood film by with Tom Cruise. Yeah. So, but I don't. Yeah, do you think it's, it's 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 a Hollywood film with Tom Cruise? It's okay. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you think it had uh, there was any sort of like in influence or effect by for Twilight Samurai, which was a very popular. For the time, moving the West also got nominated for Oscars. That certainly helped it. Do you know what? I, I I wouldn't be surprised if the guys behind it had seen Twilight Samurai and were like, "Yeah, we want to put our own spin on this." 
let's yeah. have an American go to Japan and be the Twilight Samurai. And and actually, the last to, to, Samurai. To be honest, the last Samurai did have some talent behind it. It was directed, so it was directed by Edward Zwick, who also did uh, uh, Shakespeare in Love. Was was a producer in Shakespeare in Love, and he did what else did he do? Um, Courage under fire. A uh, blood diamond with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, and not, but another decent move. Uh, so yeah, so definitely, definitely some talent behind it. So it was not a complete failure as a movie. Oh, Glory. Oh, I haven't seen that. But oh, I know, I know the movie. Yeah, with uh, Denzel Washington. Yeah, may- maybe I haven't seen it in a long time, but maybe there's a lot of similarities between the two. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But anyway, anyway, uh, maybe uh, like I think the Twilight Summer is a, is a movie technically is not the no, the Last Samurai. Sorry, as a movie technically is not bad, but. Uh, uh, but just the, like the whole story felt ridiculous to me. Uh, but yeah, it yeah. was 2003, so the year after the Twilight Summer, which is, makes it even more suspiciously more suspicious <laughs> as uh, being influenced by the Twilight Summer. Although maybe not, who knows? And it also has Hiroyuki Sanada. Oh yeah, okay. And it has Ken Watanabe. Does it? Ha- is he in there? Yes. A- every time there's a Japanese in an American movie, Ken Watanabe has to be in it. Yeah, it's either him or Hiroyuki Sanada. Yeah, interesting. Okay. Okay. Although, I mean, maybe, maybe it could also be a coincidence because obviously you have to have the most popular Jap. If Hollywood wants Japanese actors, obviously the pool that they're going to go to is, okay, let, who's the most popular in Japan right now? Let's get them. Yeah. So, okay. So anything else that we can say about the Twilight Samurai, about Yoji Yamada, about, about uh, the, like the trilogy in general? Uh, I guess one thing that I could add is uh, Yoshi Yamada is still making films, which is great. He made a recent uh, Tora-san film, which is obviously without Tora-san because the actor is dead, but it kind of was like sort of like a farewell uh, a farewell uh, story to sort of like the hero because they made, I think, over 50 films together or something like that, 40-some films together. Yeah. Uh, and it was called Tora-san, We Will Miss You or something like that. I, didn't, I wanted to see it. I didn't have a chance to... To check it out, but he also he's made another film since then, like I think a very recent film. So he's still active. Yeah, it's called "It's a Flickering Life," which was released in 2021, and it looks like he's got another one called "Hello Mother," which is due for release next year, 2023. Yeah, so he's still very active, and you know, he seems to be, you know, he seems to be making films that are reasonably popular and reasonably successful, even to this yeah. day. Yeah, like. Uh... I think this is his, like, this trilogy is his first stab at historical films, and, like, he can shoot action scenes, and uh, he brings that talent for uh, picking up domesticity, looking at domesticity, uh, and, and he puts it in a samurai context, and it's fantastic. Absolutely. Oh, wow. Apparently he did the screenplay for Castle of Sand. Oh, why, well, what is that? Castle Sand uh, is this fantastic uh, a film by Yoshitaro Nomura. It's like a murder mystery. Uh, it's great. Oh, the, 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 from the 70s? Yes. Okay. Police procedural. Okay. Might, might be worth checking out. Um, so, okay. So, uh, I, I, either way, I think this is a good point to end our discussion about The Twilight Samurai. I think it was a very good discussion. Uh, overall, I enjoyed this film. Uh, we didn't answer to the question to whether or not it deserves it recognition, but it it does deserve it, right? Yeah, I I, I would I would agree with that. Again, it's not maybe not the best, but it brings history to life with characters you care about, and uh, 
that's what you want from a film that you you're taken with the action uh and you 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 want to watch what happens to the characters and uh yeah once the stakes get high you're really invested in it it's just fun and the action scenes are fantastic absolutely all right so i think that's a that's a good end to our discussion next episode we will uh talk about the 2010 uh, thai taiwanese film a uh, thailandese film sorry uh uncle thai, film, thai. thai not thailandese is that incorrect uh thailand thai thai is the proper adjective yeah thai film okay so we're talking about uncle Bo- we will talk about uncle boon me who can recall his past life by a director whom uh if you do me the honor of pronouncing jason uh, uh is it a pitchapong verisephical that sounds very correct all right uh so that's it for this episode uh, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, concerns, please uh, feel free to let us know at heroic-purgatory.blogspot.com or you can reach us on Twitter at heroicpurgatory, all in one word. Uh, otherwise, we'll see you next time.
ときめいたこと渡された白いラブレター愛されたこと選ばれたこと初めての夢のプレゼント声を揃えてピアノに合わせ Thank、you